Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. Want to turn with me to Luke chapter 13, continuing on in the series. This is week number 49 in our series. And we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 30 this morning. Luke 13, verses 22 through 30. And he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Let's pray. Lord, as we approach your word this morning, we ask that you would open our eyes to see the glory written across these these passages. Jesus, we, we pray that we would see you at work in this day and in ours. And Lord, we ask that you would give us understanding hearts, God, to receive your word, to apply faith, that we could respond and walk with you all of our days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I remember going to a wedding and arriving at the wedding. I wasn't officiating the wedding, I was attending the wedding. And we get to the wedding, and lo and behold, the parking lot's full of cars, but there's no people walking in the building from the cars. And we kind of, okay, that's kind of odd, but we pull, we park, so we walk into the building, there's no people around anywhere. Well, the wedding had already started, it started 30 minutes ago. And you ever have one of those sinking feelings like, oh, we, we were wrong, we thought it was going to start at 2 o'clock, but really it started at 1.30 or something like that? You ever do that? Or show up really late to a wedding. It's probably your husband's fault, right? Always is. But, so you miss it. And they don't wait for you. This day and time has been set for a really long time. And nobody's waiting for, for you to show up to start the wedding. The wedding's going to begin when it was scheduled to begin. That's probably a little bit late, but you know how it goes. It, the wedding's going to begin where it's going to begin. And I think often we think, coming to this thing like, oh man, I can't believe I missed this, I misunderstood, I didn't realize it. 
we get a little bit of this in this passage. As we begin to look at this, I want us to understand that as well-intentioned as we may be, if we're not walking in sync with the Lord and in the ways that He is giving us to walk in, we may miss what He has for us. So I want to look at three things in this passage. Number one is this. It's the mission. There's a mission. There's a narrow door, number two. And then at the end, we see a warning and a promise. So let's start with the mission. So in the beginning here, we read that Jesus is journeying toward Jerusalem. He's on his way toward Jerusalem. Luke wants us to remember that Jesus Christ is heading somewhere. He's not just randomly kind of touring the country. He has got purpose in every step that he takes. And so from the very beginning of Luke chapter 9, we see that there is this progress that Jesus is making with his disciples and with the people who are following him. And so if you want to turn over to Luke chapter 9 really quick, turn back a couple of pages. Luke chapter 9, verse 18. And at the time, people begin to ask, who is this Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is this guy who's making these these statements and healing these people and calling people to follow after him? Who is this guy? We've, We've never heard anyone preach the way he preaches. We've never seen anybody Take hold and, and, and raise someone from the dead and, and heal people, heal leprosy and call tax collectors and sinners to himself. We've never seen anyone do this and people begin to ask. The religious leaders are asking, who is this? The disciples, after he stills the storm on the lake, ask, who is this? Even the Roman leaders, Herod himself, is asking, who is this Jesus? And in chapter 9, verse 18, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, Who do the crowds say that I am? Jesus himself is asking his disciples, Who do people think that I am? And they answer, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, one of the prophets. And then he turns the question on them and says, But who do you say that I am? This is the question, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, the Christ of God. You are the Messiah. You are the chosen one. You are the one who's going to bring redemption. And then in verse 21, Jesus goes on and says this, and he strictly charged and commanded them, telling no one, say, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed on the third day be raised. So there's this revelation of who Jesus Christ is. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And he goes on to tell his disciples, look, the implications of this are that I'm going to be murdered, that I'm going to be raised on the third day, and I'm going to accomplish the very thing I was sent to do. And this is all going to happen at Jerusalem. And so at the end of chapter 9, verse 51, if you want to turn a page over, we read this. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, what did he do? When the days drew near for him to begin to accomplish the work of redemption, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus in this passage is on mission. Jesus is on mission. He's not just here to be a good example, although he was. He's not just here to be a prophet, although he was. 
not just here to be a healer, someone who could raise people from the dead. He did those things. He wasn't just here just to love people, although he did do that. He is on mission to go to the cross and accomplish redemption for God's people. He is on mission to pay the price for our sins. He is on mission to be the sacrifice that is going to atone for our sins. This is what He is on mission to do. This is Jesus Christ realizing there is no other way for us and going to the cross to accomplish redemption for us. And as He is on His way to Jerusalem, as He's on mission, someone comes to Him and asks Him some questions. Here's the question. Lord, will those who are saved be few? So as Jesus is on mission to accomplish redemption, someone comes to him and asks him a question. Is there going to be a lot of people who are saved? And I think maybe this guy has been traveling with Jesus, and he's heard the things that Jesus is saying, like deny yourself, come follow me and die. Stay awake and ready. No one who looks back is fit for the kingdom. Repent or you will perish. And here Jesus is calling people to submit and surrender their lives to Him with every fiber of our beings. And He's wondering, is, are those people who are hearing your message and responding to it, are they going to be few? I mean, how many people are really going to hear this and, and do it? How many people are going to respond to this? It sounds more like a commercial for the Marines than it does for Disney World. And if you're looking for Disney World, this isn't the place you're going to find it. But there was also a cultural understanding as well at the time and to the people Jesus is speaking to that only Israel would be saved except for a really few blatant sinners. But for the most part, all of Israel would be saved and those excluded would be the Gentiles. So is Israel or everybody else? And everyone outside of Israel was a Gentile. And they weren't going to make it. But the Israelites were going to. And so he's kind of asking Jesus, maybe in the context of like, hey, is this for everybody? I mean, is this for everyone in the world? Is, is, this, is this message just for Israel? Or is this, I mean, who, is this, who are you talking about here? Who's included in this number? Who makes the cut? And what I love about Jesus in this passage, in, like he did in the beginning of chapter 13, is there's a question posed, right? The question posed is, hey, um, what about these Galileans who had died and, and Pilate had mingled their, their blood with their sacrifices? And, and, you know, what does that mean? And Jesus completely disregards the question and goes right for the heart of the matter. And he says, you need to repent or you will likewise perish. Forget the question. I'm not answering that question. I'm going for what's really important. In the same way, in this passage, Jesus completely disregards the question. He's like, I'm not going to give you what you want to know. I'm going to give you what you need to know. I'm going I'm to pass on to you the things that you must know that are so vital for your life. So what does Jesus say? He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive to enter through the narrow door. This word for strive in the original language is where we get the word for agonize. 
And it was a technical word that they would use to describe someone who's competing in the games. So someone who's competing in, in, in a, a set of games, and they have completely, wholeheartedly given themselves to this competition. That they were on the court, or they're on the field, or wherever they're at, and they've completely given themselves to this one thing. Nothing else matters. When they are competing on that field, when a football player or basketball player or whatever else is on the field or on the court, nothing else matters in that moment. Doesn't matter what's going on at home. Doesn't matter what's going on in national politics. Doesn't matter anything. Nothing else matters. They've completely given themselves to this one thing. The closest thing I could really compare this to is thinking of a bride the week of her wedding, right? You've ever talked to a bride the week of her wedding? Is she talking about national politics? Is she concerned what the stock market is doing? Is there any, any care about really anything else than her wedding? I mean, this is like the holy passion of her life, right? This is all-consuming. Nothing else matters. She eats, sleeps, and breathes wedding planning. Man, this is, this is the, the complete, this is the whole thing, man. Everything in her body is given to this one task of getting ready and preparing for this day. And that's all she's done for the past six months or whatever. But she's wholeheartedly given herself this thing. And when Jesus begins to talk about strive to enter through the narrow door, He's not talking about this a half-hearted approach. He's not talking about just kind of take it or leave it, maybe, maybe not, when I feel like it. He is talking about a, a holy passion of our lives. That when we're on that field, when we see that door, that there would be nothing else that would matter in this world. That we have completely given ourselves to this one thing completely devoted to knowing Jesus Christ. That is what He's calling us to. That all of our life would be surrendered to Him. But not only that, not only does He say for us to strive to enter through the narrow door, it also means this, that there's only one door. He doesn't say strive to enter through the narrow doors, as in there's multiple doors, there's plenty of doors. If you miss this one, don't worry, there's another one down the way. There's, there's a couple other doors that I didn't tell you about. This is the door. This is the door. I ran a half marathon a couple years ago. And the finish of this half marathon was in the Notre Dame football stadium. And you'd run through the gates and you run out into the field and the, the finish line's at the 50-yard line of, of the stadium. And so, man, it, you're looking forward to running out onto the field and just what that would feel like and probably how soft the grass is and, you know, the whole thing. And as I, I run through the tunnel and I get, I run across the finish line. I didn't win. Um, but I got this little medal, so it was kind of cool. Um, but I almost passed out and died. That's a different story. So, I, you know, but the thing with the running the marathon is that I couldn't decide the route. I couldn't decide where the finish line was going to be. It wasn't like I showed up at the race and thought, well, the stadium's over here, but you've got me kind of going this way in the beginning, so I'm just going to go this way. And, you know, I don't, 13 miles is a little bit long. I think I'd prefer maybe a four-mile race at this point. So why don't we just put the finish line a little bit closer, and 
I'm going to kind of run in this direction. We, I couldn't do that. Part of being in the race, part of participating in this race, was that there was a clear route marked out. And there was a clear and defined finish line. That this point, you ran 13, was it 0.1 or whatever it is, miles. And this is the route you took, and everything was measured out, and everything was laid out. And if you decided to take a different route, and you decided that the finish line wasn't where you wanted to finish, you'd do something else, you were disqualified. You didn't finish the proper race. You did your own thing, and it didn't work out for you because you had signed up to, to run the race. In the same way, the route and the finish line in the race for us has been marked out. There is a clear and defined finish line. There is a route to be ran that we just can't go our own way or we feel like doing something different that we can do and expect to finish the race the way the race has been marked out for us. And this is what Jesus begins to say in this passage. It's a bit of a sobering passage because as Jesus begins to move on in this, in this, in this chapter, he begins to issue warnings and promises. Warnings and promises. Isn't, I was talking with a, a friend this week, a, a pastor, and as I'm describing him this, this, this passage of Scripture, and I'm, we're, I'm asking him questions, and I'm trying to dialogue about it and help me understand, he's like, man, I'm glad I'm not preaching that one. <laughs> man, that's hard. I'm like, oh, thanks, pal. That's really helpful. But this is, this is, where, this is, this is where this passage becomes difficult. Because in this passage, there are people who one day the door will be shut. And one day the people in this passage come knocking at the door. And they say, let us in. Will you let me in? And the question that Jesus begins to answer isn't how many. The question he begins to answer is how soon. There is an urgency to this passage that I don't want us to miss. There is an urgency of the gospel. There is an urgency of responding to Jesus that we don't just take and just kind of, I'll get to that later. We don't know if there's going to be a later. We don't know how much time that each one of us has. We don't know when Jesus is going to return. We do not know those things. And he's, as he's communicating to people, he's saying, look, the, the question isn't how many, but how soon. There is an urgency to the things that I'm telling you about that I want you to respond to, that I want you to take and, and grapple with and wrestle with. Don't sit on it. Don't put it off till later. Do it now. And so people begin to knock on the door. And they say, let us in. And the response from behind the door is this, I do not know you. And they come back and say, but we ate with you. But we spent time with you. And the response is, I don't know you. But we heard your teaching. And we, were, we saw the miracles that you did. And the people that you touched and the lives that were changed. And the response is, but I don't know you. And it's a sober 
sober thing to realize this. That we may sit in church week after week. That we may serve in children's ministry. That we may sing songs of praise to God. But our hearts, we may not know Jesus. And this is what he's saying to people. This would have been shocking to them. They would have been like, what are you talking about? And I think it's hard for even us to swallow today because we think, well, I'm here, I'm, going, I'm, I'm doing these things, and surely that's going to be enough. But I feel like Jesus is issuing us a challenge today, an invitation. At the time of the Civil War, there, was, there were pastors who sincerely believed that slavery was a good thing and actually promoted it. As sincere as they may have been, they were wrong. They were dead wrong. They were out of step with God. And in this passage, there, may be, there were people who were sincerely believed that just listening to the sermons, that just being a part and seeing what Jesus Christ was doing was good enough. Was that's all I needed to do. I just needed to be around the people who were, who were actually following Jesus, that I myself didn't have to do anything about that, that I myself didn't have to make a response, that I myself didn't have to follow Jesus, that just being around it was good enough. But Jesus wants us to respond to Him with wholehearted devotion. He is looking and He desires from us a complete life surrendered to Him in relationship with Him. Not going through the motions, not just attending church, but wholehearted devotion that is in relationship to Him. This is what He's calling us to. And the, the horror of this passage is that the people who are outside the door don't remain neutral. He begins to describe a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's beginning to describe hell. This weeping and gnashing of teeth is describing someone who is in pain and in frustration. J.C. Ryle writes this, Thousands will wake up in another world and be convinced about truths which they refuse to believe on earth. Earth is the only place in God's creation where there is any infidelity. Hell itself is nothing but truth known too late. The part of the horror of this passage isn't just the, the pain of hell, although that is real and that is powerful. But it's the people looking in and seeing those people who have responded to Jesus Christ and are in relationship with Him, who have entered through the narrow door, seeing them with the saints with the fathers of the faith in great communion and banquet with them. The people who, are, who would have heard this, and as we come to the end here, and it, Jesus begins to talk about people coming from all corners of the earth, from all points in the compass, people coming in to this great banquet, this great feast, those who are last are coming in, those who are first are, are, are missing out. Isaiah 25, 6 and 8, we read about, actually I'm going to turn there real quick, Isaiah 25, 
this great end-time banquet. This great end-time banquet that is described for us. At the end of time, there is going to be a banquet unlike any other. And just like a reception after a wedding isn't just for people to, to eat, it is a celebration. It is rejoicing, and there is dancing, there is music. We read this, Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on, his, on this mountain and cover that is, that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations, and he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. So he's, he's saying these things. There's people, they had an understanding of this end-time banquet. And they thought, well, hey, I'm going to be invited to this thing. I'm going to be a part of this thing. And he's saying, look, if, you, if there is no response to the work of Jesus... If there's just a, a half-hearted looking in and seeing the stuff going on, if there hasn't been a surrender to Christ, if there hasn't been a faith in Him and a relationship with Him, then you are going to miss out on this global feast. And I think for us, this is an encouragement. This is an invitation for us to know Christ, to make Him our single focus our single passion in this life that nothing else would come close to this that this would be our the passion of our lives just like that girl on the week of her wedding who's just so given and consumed by this day that's coming up for us we would be the people of God who are so consumed with Jesus Christ that we this is what we would think and this is what we would eat and this is what we would sleep and this is what we would give ourselves to this holy passion, Jesus Christ. And the beauty of it is, he's talking to people who haven't made Jesus Christ the center of their lives. He's talking to people who need to know this. Just like he's speaking to us today, that we would follow hard after Jesus, that he would be our passion in our life. The good news is that there is grace for us. In the beginning of chapter 13, he says this, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. If we have not made Jesus Christ the passion of our lives, the wholehearted devotion of our lives, if we have not come into relationship with Him, there is time for us. There is time for us. There is an opportunity to respond. There is an invitation to know Jesus. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It is an invitation for all people to respond to him. To not just know about him. To not just participate with people who know him. But to know him for ourselves. To know him that deep within our hearts that we would know and fellowship and commune with Jesus. And that's what his death on the cross does it brings people from every part of the planet to him it brings us 
who are sinful and rebellious near to Him. It's what gives us the opportunity to proclaim this and offer the invitation like He does, because His death has accomplished this. His death on the cross, His journey towards Jerusalem, secures the fact that in heaven, one day, people from every tribe and language and place on earth will be together worshiping Him and celebrating this great banquet. Because He has made a way that through His cross, we can know Him and fellowship with Him. I want to urge you this morning, if you do not know Jesus Christ, today can be the day of salvation. Today can be the day where you come into fellowship with Jesus Christ. That today can be the day where you would wholeheartedly pursue and know Him right where you are at, and that you would meet the Savior. And for us, who've gotten sidetracked, where we haven't strived to know Him and love Him and follow after Him, there's an opportunity for us to repent as well and turn away from anything that would hinder that walk. That would, that would, anything that would hinder us would pull us away from this holy passion that we could repent and say, Jesus, forgive me. I have made other things the most important thing. There is this, there is this real date coming up and I have been sidetracked and I have lost my way and I need you to get me back on track again. You know what? That is the grace of God to each one of us. That no matter where we are, hearing this today, there is still time. The door has not been shut. That we have an opportunity to respond to Jesus Christ today. I want to close this message in prayer. But for those of of us sitting here today who do not know Jesus Christ, there is a way to know Jesus Christ, to approach Him in faith, to respond to His message, to place our faith, to ask Him for the forgiveness of our sins, to place our faith in His death on the cross, that He died for our sins, and that through Him we can have eternal life. He is the narrow door. There is no other way. And for us who... Jesus Christ has not become our single focus, our single passion. That's waned. There is an invitation for us to repent and fix our eyes back on Jesus Christ and ask Him for the grace and the strength to walk in His ways with all of our hearts. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You this morning for Your grace. Thank You, Lord, for the invitation to follow after you, to know you, to fellowship with you, to have relationship with you. And Lord Jesus, I ask for my own heart this morning that you would be my single focus, my holy passion. God, I pray for this church that we would be a people of God who are wholeheartedly devoted to you that there would be nothing else that would compete for our lives and our passions and our desires, that you would be everything. Lord, I pray for those this morning who do not know you. God, I pray that you would give us the gift of faith 
and repentance that we could respond and walk with you for all of our days. So Lord Jesus, meet us right where we are at. Help us. Turn us towards you again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.